Romans chapter 3. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles there tonight. Romans chapter 3. Paul has been making his case that the entire world is guilty before God, not only the immoral person, but the moral person, and not only the moral person, but the Jew. And in tonight, in verses 1 through 8, we will finish up his, uh, his argument that the Jew needs a Savior. Paul starts off in Romans chapter 3, verse 1, by saying, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what benefit, what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then, if some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Absolutely not. May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy words, and thou mightest prevail when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. In this passage, we'll see that the failure of the Jews does not cancel the faithfulness of God. On the contrary, it highlights it. But it does not follow that the that faithfulness, I'm sorry, that faithlessness, it does not follow that faithlessness and sin are good because they highlight the faithfulness and holiness of God. God's holiness, Paul says, is not an excuse for sinful behavior. Allow me, if you will, I'm going to summarize the whole message first, because this can be a little bit complicated. This is one of those fairly complicated sections of the book of Romans. So if you'll allow me, I'm going to tell you the ending of all this first, so that while we're studying through it, you'll have a framework for how to handle this. Okay? The, first, the first principle that I'd like to, to just get out in the open is it's one that you already know, and that is that God, the creator of the universe, is holy, perfectly holy, perfectly without sin, never has sinned, never even thought about sinning, never will sin. When a believer sins or acts contrary to God's holy character, the believer incurs what we call theologically real moral guilt. Now, we're not talking about how he feels. We're not talking about feeling guilty. We're talking about being guilty. You see the difference. I hope you see the difference. One is a feeling. The other one is real moral guilt. It's as if the judge has pronounced you guilty. Now, at this particular point in the discussion, I'm not talking about whether the person feels guilty or not. I'm talking about whether you really are guilty. And you are. As a believer, now we're talking about tonight. If anyone here and, and, and doesn't understand this, perhaps I need to, to make sure I preface these remarks. When a believer sins... That believer is in no danger whatsoever of losing their eternal salvation. That person's eternal salvation is secure. 
and, and nothing can ever be done. Neither height, nor depth, nor angels, nor, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Not even any future judgment, no future sin. Nothing can separate us. We're not talking about that right now. We're talking about a believer, and David is going to be the example of this. So that's why I want to stick with the believer right now. God is holy. The believer who sins is guilty. There is a, there, the, the, the concepts of holiness and guilt, real moral guilt, the judge having pronounced you guilty, are antithetical. I want you to see that. They are absolutely antithetical. There could not be more of a contrast. It's literally darkness and light, to use John's terms in 1 John. It's literally black and white. You catch that? There is nothing whatsoever with regard to our guilt, even as a believer, that is like God's holiness. They are absolute opposites. So understanding that, and understanding that when this is brought forth, it does actually demonstrate to us, uh, when we sin, we see God's holiness even more acutely than when we're not sinning, because there's such a contrast. Okay? That's what Paul's doing in this passage. Actually, that's what David was doing in Psalm 51, so you might have that in mind. We're going to turn there in just a few moments. So the believer who sinned is absolutely guilty. Now, there are a series in verses 5 through 8, and again, I'm going to go over the ending before we ever start back at the beginning tonight, so hang in there with me, but I think this will help you to understand it better. Because of this principle that Paul points out, and if you've got this, if you see the contrast here, of what Paul's doing, what David will do in Psalm 51, the incredible contrast between the guilt of the sinner and the holiness of the Creator, if you see that, then you'll see what's going on in this passage. So I hope that you do. If not, get with me afterwards and we'll make sure that you, you get caught up to speed. But based upon this principle, Paul, like all other Bible teachers of all time, has to deal with some people who overthink things. And these Jews were great thinkers, but sometimes they were overthinkers. And so they, he's, he's hit with a, a series of absurdities that might be possible applications of this. Now, one of the possible applications that's going to come up by these people who are speaking absurdities, and I, and I hope you'll see right through it, is, well, if it's, if it's really a good thing that the holiness of God is magnified or highlighted, when the believer sins, in a sense, if there's something good about that, then um, why, not we just, why don't we just sin more so that God looks better? Yeah, I'm glad you think it's absurd. That Paul thinks it's absurd, too. Another thing that, that Paul's going to argue is, well, if this is really true, these are, these are what he's arguing against, the absurdities, if this is really true that because I sin, God looks better, then why is he mad at me? I'm helping him out, right? Absurdity. Okay. Now, now listen, with that in mind, with this framework, God's holy, we're guilty. As a sinner, now there's a, there's a remedy for this, and that's confession of the sin. Okay. We're not talking about that right now. We're just talking about the principle. Listen now to these, this series of absurdities, this series of people who are overthinking, and then finally Paul's going to get really frustrated with them and say their condemnation's just. If they're going to twist things around like that, their condemnation is just. So Paul says in verse 5, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? Is God, is God being unfair by judging these folks? 
or judging the one that is guilty? Well, Paul says, I really, I'm going to translate what's in parentheses here in verse 5. He says, I'm really embarrassed to even have to bring this up because it's so absurd, but I know some of you are thinking it, so I'm going to bring it up anyway, Paul says. But he's a little nicer than that, so he says, I'm, I'm speaking in human terms. I, I'm, I'm acting like a philosopher right now, and, and sometimes philosophers do tend to overthink things because they have time to overthink things. I, if, you, if you look back, most of the philosophers were single, weren't they? And nobody, cause nobody, one, nobody would marry him because how could you have a conversation over dinner with David Hume? I mean, think about it. I think he was single, was he not? Yeah. And um, second of all, if they did have a conversation, it would end up driving their wives crazy. And they, they would say, that's it. I'm out of here. So you have mostly single philosophers. And so that's, this is the kind of thing a philosopher would come up with, at least one that doesn't have the framework of a, of a Christian mindset. If, if, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, why is God mad at me? Or why is, is God unrighteous when he judges me? No, he's not unrighteous. Otherwise, how's God going to judge the world? This dichotomy demonstrates what's going on. Holiness is not going to have anything to do with unholiness or guilt, unrighteousness. And so God's got to step in. In verse 7, But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I being judged as a sinner? What's the big deal? You see? You see the arguments that Paul's having to deal with? And some people actually reported that Paul was teaching it would actually be better for you to sin more so that God looks better. Did Paul ever say that? No, he never said it. And, and actually, as you go through the book of Romans, you're going to see a series of these kind of questions that go back and forth, where, especially when we get to Romans chapter 6, this, this whole subject is going to come up again. But he says, and why not say, as we're slanderously reported, as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. That is so absurd that Paul, and you can tell, even in a, while he's walking in fellowship, he's speaking for the Holy Spirit here, and he writes down the words of God, the words God wants him to write, he said, their condemnation is just. You know, so kind of, he's throwing up his hand, and he said, you're overthinking it so badly, and you're twisting around my words so badly, just because, and, and sometimes, not all the time, because sometimes there's really legitimate questions, and by the way, I'm not... I'm not knocking any questions that you would have. That's how you learn. These are not questions that were designed to learn anything, though. You know, there's two. If, you're, if you've done any kind of teaching, if you've ever been a professor, uh, taught any, on any level, really, there are always questions that you'll feel from the class that are designed to help the class understand the information better. True, legitimate questions. Then there's another kind of question. Those of you who taught know what I'm, what I'm driving at. There's a kind of question that's just designed to make the student look good or just designed to make the professor look bad. And that's what these are. So now that we have the ending, and now that you see how ridiculous this really is, I would like to do two things. I want to summarize the entire section, verses 1 through 8, and this will be the end of the condemnation of the Jews section. Next week we'll move into the condemnation of the entire world, and then... Thankfully, Paul's going to tell us what to do about that condemnation. And we'll have an incredible section on justification. But I'd like to summarize, and in the process of summarizing, we're going to have to go to two other passages. So again, you might have to have your, uh, if you wonder where these passages are, you might take time now to look them up. One's going to be 2 Samuel 12, and the other one will be Psalm 51. And the reason we'll go to Psalm 51 is because David goes there, I mean, Paul goes there, 
in order to make his point. Remember, in the last part of Romans chapter 2, Paul tells us that the Jew is just as condemned as the moral Gentile and as the immoral Gentile. And this came as quite a shock to the Jew, but the Jew had the law and didn't do the law. He didn't tell other people about the law. didn't fulfill the law by exercising faith in the Messiah. Uh, so the, the Jew who had the law written didn't fulfill it any better than the Gentile who had the law written on his heart. That's what Paul's argument is in the first part. And then, So the Jew by now is throwing up his hands in verse 1 and saying, then what advantage has the Jew or what benefit is there in circumcision? So at this point, Paul handles another objector. Since he knows the Jewish mind so well, he understands that the Jew's going to say, now wait a minute. I've had just about enough of this business that the Jew doesn't have an advantage. Have you forgotten that the Jews are God's people, Paul? Have you not read the Old Testament, Paul? Is there any, any advantage to being a racial Jew as far as you're concerned, Paul? Remember, they thought Paul was a turncoat. So by now they're very exasperated, and that's what we see in verse 1. And Paul answers in verse 2, sure there's an advantage. There's great advantages in being born a Jew. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles from God. Sure, Paul had read the Old Testament. Sure, he knew about the advantages of the Jew. We studied a little bit of it last week. I mentioned Psalm 147, 20, Isaiah 5, 5 and 7, Amos 3, 2 and 3. We took a look at Matthew 22, verses 1 through 8, and especially Romans 9, 4 and 5, where Paul's going to return to the subject later, and he'll list out all the things that the Jews had that were advantages. But when he calls the role of these advantages... One item tops all the others. Namely, the fact that the, the, to the Jews and to no other nation was accorded this unique privilege, the high honor of being custodians of the oracles of God, or the self-revelation that God gave to his creation. That was given to the Jews. That's a pretty serious advantage. Don't you think? I think so, too. To have God's written revelation... To his people, his self-revelation is a huge advantage. But Paul says, the problem is you didn't do anything with it. You had this great advantage. You had all this information, and you did nothing with it. And as we said last time, in case you weren't here, let me say, say it again. Be careful, believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the church age, in the age in which we live in, in this information age. There's plenty of information out there, at least in our culture. It's not that way in every culture. And I don't say this to make you feel guilty about being an American. I am proud to be an American. I am glad that God allowed me to be born in America. And we could start verse 1 over again and say, well, what advantage is there to be born an American? Well, there's a lot in every way. We're in a dispensation. We're in a country where we have all kind of information about God. But is that enough to get, to he get us to heaven? No, being a born in American doesn't get you to heaven. I think some Americans think that sometimes. They really do. But it doesn't. But we have incre an incredible information advantage over many other places in the world. Many other places. A few of them I've had the, the privilege to visit. And the most basic things that we would take for granted, they just soak up. A couple of years ago, I was in Kiev. I think Jim was here. I was there. We switched places. And I was able to talk to Campus Crusade at the University of Kiev, I guess, downtown. Uh, 
And my subject was eternal security. And it was brand new to them. And the response was fascinating. About half of them, it was like the chains had fallen off. They had been released. They wanted to hear more and more and more about it. The other half just kind of laughed, laughed it off and went their own way. Something that when, when, it, when we start talking about it here in our churches or on the radio or if you read it in a book, you say, oh, yeah, I know that. Okay. But we have great information, just like the Jews did. I hope that we handle it better. So here's Paul's argument. This had been entrusted to the Jews. It had to be accepted by faith and obeyed where obedience was an issue. It should be held in honor, and it should have been transmitted to others. None of that happened. Or very little of it happened. Very little. There were, there were pockets of people that did that. But on the whole, they were not faithful. So Paul's argument is privileges imply duties. Honor and honors go hand in hand with responsibilities. Could it really be truthfully stated that Israel had shouldered these responsibilities, that it had been faithful to the trust that God gave it? Unfortunately, the answer was no. So in verse 3, Paul says, Well, what then if some did not believe, their unbelief did not nullify the faithfulness of God, or will not nullify it, will it? And again he says in verse 4, No, no, just because some of the Jews were unfaithful, this didn't change the fact that God is holy. Because they're unfaithful, it doesn't change the fact that God is faithful. No sin that any one of us ever commit is going to end up changing the character of God. I think Satan might have thought that that was not the case. I think he really thought that he could have victory over God. But he couldn't. None of us are going to do it. The best bet that we have is to submit to him and, and understand that's where victory lies, in submitting to the will of God the Father. So if some are unfaithful, it's not going to nullify the faithfulness of God. And Paul goes on to say to make sure that we understand, let God be true, even though every person found, be found a liar. If there's nobody that's ever righteous, God is still going to be righteous. We don't pull him down by our mistakes. The Jews didn't cause God's character to be altered by their mistakes. The very suggestion that God might become unfaithful causes the Apostle Paul to shudder. And he uses this very, very strong term, meganoito. It's the strongest Greek negative. Now, does Paul mean that all Jews are doomed? No. No, of course not. There were pockets. There were some who exercised faith. Abraham, for one. I mean, Abraham was, gave the pattern for all Jews to follow. Unfortunately, many don't follow that pattern. They just want the, the genetics of Abraham, but they don't want to share the faith of Abraham. So not all Jews are doomed. Absolutely not. He very tactfully states here that some are faithful. The Jew, has, the Jew is just as condemned as the Gentile, but the Jew also has every bit the chance that the Gentile has to go to heaven. That's all Paul is going to say in this epistle. There is an advantage to being a Jew because you got the information first. True. Okay. But you're condemned as well. But Paul's not going to leave it at condemnation. He's going to also say, you've got every bit the chance to get to heaven as the Gentile does. You just have to exercise faith. You've got to get off your high horse. You've got to quit counting on your genetics to get you to heaven and exercise simple faith. And I hope everybody in this room has done it tonight. If you hadn't, I'm going to tell you the same thing. Quit trying to work your way to heaven. Quit trying to be good enough. You can't do it. 
Get off your high horse. Come to God with the empty hands of faith and say, Father, I know I need a Savior. I come to you with empty hands and trust Jesus Christ for eternal life. So God's faithful to his promises, even though we're not sometimes. But he's also faithful to his threats. Now, if he's faithful to his promises, that's a lot of comfort for those who are going to submit to him. But it's also a warning that he's faithful to his threats for those who intend not to. God's not just going to say at the great white throne, you know what, I changed my mind. Ollie, all y'all come free. You know, I just can't send y'all, I just can't spank, I can't send you to hell. So come on in. I'll, I'll figure something out. I'll, I'll, I'll figure something to tell my son who died for your sins and, the, and who you rejected and, I, and with whom I, and I had to inflict the punishment upon him. I'll figure something to tell him. No, no problem. Come on in. Paul's saying God doesn't have that kind of character. He's not, it's not going to happen. You need to adjust yourself to him. Human falsehood and unfaithfulness, far from nullifying divine faithfulness, cause it to stand out in bold contrast to our unfaithfulness. I hope everybody's got that. That's the gist of this passage. Human falsehood and unfaithfulness, far from nullifying divine faithfulness, cause divine faithfulness to stand out in bold contrast. Okay. Now, what I'd like to do with the time that we have remaining is to, to go back to the Old Testament and use some of what Paul was using to help validate this point. I, think, I hope that you have the gist of all eight verses now. Okay. There were advantages to being a Jew, but those advantages were not such that we're going to get to you to heaven. And no, you, you can't, you're not doing good because you sin, and the sin makes God look better. It's not going to, not going to get you anywhere with God. With that in mind, I'd like for us to turn first to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12, and we're not going to study this passage. I mainly want to read it. You probably are very familiar with it already, and if not, we will certainly become very familiar with it in a few months in our study of the Old Testament on Sunday night. But in order to see the relevancy of the quotation that Paul uses from Psalm 51, in Romans chapter 3, we need to see the background for Psalm 51. Okay. So you see where we're going? We're in Romans chapter 3. Paul quotes Psalm 51, so we're going to go back and look at that. But really, before we can look at Psalm 51, we need to go back to 2 Samuel 12 to see what's going on in Psalm 51. So we're actually going two steps back, and we're going to work our way back to Romans. And when we finish, we're all going to have a great understanding of what's going on in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Some of President Reagan's optimism is rubbing off on me. Okay. We're all going to have a great understanding of it. I think you really will. I really do. I think you will. Look first at 2 Samuel 11. Now what has happened is David has sinned with Bathsheba, and then David has conspired to have Bathsheba's husband killed. You all know that. You probably have known it since you were a kid. What you might not have done is read on to the next chapter about David's forgiveness. So listen with me, and we'll just read through it. I'm going to skip part of it, uh, but I think you'll get the gist. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, Remember, David's a shepherd, and so David is going to have very little patience for anything that's unfair that has to do with a sheep. Okay? There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie down in his bosom. It slept next to him in the bed is what that's meaning. 
and it was like a daughter to him. Now travel came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come for him. You see what's going on here? This, this jerk, rich man, comes and takes the only lamb, and it's a member of the family. It's like a daughter to him. David's a shepherd. David's also very compassionate. You think he's going to put up with that? No, sirree, Bob. David thinks it's a, he doesn't realize it's a story. It, it's a, a teaching aid. He thinks it's a real story at this point. So David's anger burned greatly against this man, the rich man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. And Nathan says to David, you are the man. It had to be the, the most chilling phrase that David had ever heard in his whole life. Uh, it had been about a year since these sins had been committed. Perhaps David thought he got away with it. It looks like it. Certainly looks like David had made no confession of those sins. He hadn't acknowledged that they were sins to this point. And so in the next several verses, Nathan goes on to just rip the king up one side and down the other. For God. And when we get to verse uh, 13, after all this, and after Nathan has told him, you're the one, you're guilty, and, and so forth. In verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He made his confession. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. Now, how does this fit in with Psalm 51? Turn to Psalm 51, and we're going to take a, the rest of the time tonight and, and consider this psalm, or a portion of this psalm. We'll study this psalm in some depth later on this year at a Sunday morning service, but this evening we need to look really at the first four verses. So we'll only look at the first four verses to see how Paul is using this in Romans chapter 3. We just read that after Nathan confronted David with these chilling words, you are the man, David answers, I have sinned. And Nathan immediately says that God forgave David. There's no delay. So where does Psalm 51 fit in? Psalm 51 is, is David's confession psalm. He didn't do it right then. He, he, said, he, said, he made his confession and he was forgiven immediately. But we have to remember here that we're, we're dealing with poetry. And we have to understand the nature of poetic compositions in the Old Testament. David writes Psalm 51 later as a meditation on the need for forgiveness. He's remembering back, you know, like a movie that has these retrospective ideas. He's going back. In doing so, he's trying to capture the intensity of a moment. That moment when he confessed and when he's waiting for word of forgiveness from Nathan. Now, as we read through it in 2 Samuel, we have David's condemnation then he says i have sinned and the text moves right on to say you're forgiven but what we need to do when we to understand psalm 51 david's going to go back in time he says i have sinned and then it's like there's an extended period of time that david inserts psalm 51 in before nathan says you're forgiven so it's like there's this pause in time 
I don't know what, what kind of physics that would be, but, but there's some sort of pause in time, and then David inserts this in to, to try to express in certainly a significantly longer period of time what was going through his soul in between the time that Nathan says, you're, between David says, I, I did it, I confess, and you're forgiven. Okay, you see what's going on with Psalm 51? It wasn't like all these things were said. This is looking back on it. This is David is trying to express what was going on in his soul in that interim, in that very brief few seconds. You know how people say sometimes, well, my whole life passed before my eyes. I mean, I've heard several people say that. And I believe them. But what they mean is there's just a whole lot of things. Now, they can recollect on that better afterwards. Because as things are happening, as, as the car is swerving all over the road or, or you know, something's happening to you, it's, it's boom, boom. But later on, you can come back and say, man, man, in that, in that second, the whole life passed before me. That's what's going on here. You see? Now, let's take a look at Psalm 51. What's different from now on from what David might have understood, we have more revelation in the New Testament that's going to tell us that you don't, you don't have to worry about it. If you confess it, you're forgiven. David, in a sense, had that, but he didn't have it as clearly revealed to him as we have it, particularly in, in 1 John. We have the written word of God. Now, a pastor may remind us that we're forgiven, but the truth is, for and we understand this, when we confess, God forgives. His word tells us that. But we have God's completed revelation. David didn't have it. In spite of that, we can still learn some things for what were going on in David's soul in that little time period where he had to, to experience this thing. So there's a lot of theology in Psalm 51. This is called a lament psalm, a lament psalm by Old Testament scholars. And the introductory cry in a lament psalm often gives the essence of the whole psalm. And that's truly the case here. David says, be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion. Blot out my transgressions. It could be translated in the beginning, have mercy on me, O God, according to your, to your loving kindness, according to your chesed. This psalm is a prayer for forgiveness based on the nature of the Lord and the desire for continued fellowship with Yahweh. You've got to understand that. And by the way... I know the first part of Romans has been heavily theological. In some, in, in some of the classes, it's been difficult to pull out personal application for the church age. You're going to get personal application for the church age here in the next 14 minutes. Believe me. Listen carefully. It'll make a world of difference in your own personal spiritual life. In these first two verses, then, we have significant theological terms that are important to the psalm and to all of the Bible. First, we have several words for sin in this section. Uh, the first word is translated, my transgressions. More precisely means, my rebellious acts. The word is pesha. It's a, in the Hebrew, it's, and a study of this word will show us that it's used in military context to describe open and, in, and rebellion with intention. Open and intentional rebellion. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your hesed, according to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. 
That's pesha. That's open and intentional rebellion. You see what David's doing? He's coming clean. He's not hiding it anymore. He hid it for a year. But now he's going to come clean. And the first word he uses to come clean is he's admitting that he openly rebelled against God. This wasn't any accident. It wasn't like he didn't know murder was wrong. He openly did it. That's the word that's used. He's not trying to cover up his sin anymore. But he is calling his sin what it is. Willful rebellion against God. Now, the form here is plural. You see it's blood out my transgressions, plural, because in this situation there was more than one. Now, I think the two main ones he's discussing here are Bathsheba and Uriah, but surely over time there had been other sins that he had committed well. He says in verse 2, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. That's the second word used for sin, avon. It carries the meaning to go astray uh, so that iniquity would implied departing from the standard way. You know, you hear that, uh, the Greek harmartia, the, the, trans, the translation, the understanding of harmartia sometimes is to miss the mark. Like an arrow shooting at a, 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 a archer shooting at a target, and it doesn't hit the target. Well, since that, true, it's missing the mark, but it's also hitting the wrong thing. But this is the word for my iniquity. So it's deviating from God's standard. The third word, he says, and cleanse me from my sin. This is the third word for sin now. This verb is hata in Hebrew, and it clearly means to miss a goal or a way. In the Old Testament, all the words for sin have to be measured against the standard, the Torah, the law of God. Here David says his actions were rebellious against it, turning aside from it and missing it. The picture of David and his sin here is a very painful one. This is not pretty. And it's not just because he's the king. It's because sin is not pretty. But when we understand that, when we see that David's calling his sin, sin, and he's saying, yes, I am guilty, and he's not doing it with defiance. That's why the, the whole sentence starts out, have mercy on me. He's coming with humility, uh, in his soul anyway, on his knees, so to speak. He is not coming to God in a state of rebellion to confess his rebellion. I hope that makes sense. I want you to see the attitude of this man who had a heart that was after God's own heart. He uses imperatives here. They're not commands, ordinarily imperatives are commands, but these are polite requests. When an imperative is used toward God, believe me, we're not commanding God anything, but we're making a polite request. But this imperative, in the form they use it, also makes it an urgent request that David is making. The first urgent request goes back to verse 1, Have mercy on me. Now, that's an imperative that God's asking him to. Lord, have mercy on me. Neither David nor any of the rest of us merit God's grace and mercy even on a good day, much less on a year like David had just had. But the prayer is for God's gracious forgiveness. The only hope for forgiveness and restoration to fellowship is God's grace, or God's mercy, if you prefer. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking of forgiveness as strictly a judicial act. It's been described that way at, at times. It's been described in such a way to, to make you think sometimes that it's an impersonal act, enacted in much the same way 
that when I go to Golden Corral, we always see if we got a quarter after we're finished and we've, we guess what color gumball is going to come out. We put a quarter in the machine. We expect to get a gumball out, preferably not a white one. That would be a waste of time. But see, see, it's a this for that. I put a, it's, a, it's like a machine. There's no personality there. It's not like he's going to have to decide whether or not to give me a gumball, that machine. It's, it's an automatic. Well, sometimes we consider God to be like a gumball machine. But the Scriptures describe the act of forgiveness. Watch this. This might change your life. He des- this describes the act of forgiveness as an act of mercy an act of mercy that God is free to perform based upon the judicial act of the imputation of all sins to Christ on the cross. I hope you see the difference. When God forgives you, it's an act of mercy that he's free to do because of Christ's work on the cross. There is a judicial act involved, but it's not the actual act of forgiveness It's an act of mercy. So that's the first thing that David prays for. And by the way, this is not the only place. When we get through with First Peter, we're going to go over quite a few of the Psalms, and I'm going to demonstrate to you that, that every place that it comes up, it's considered to be an act of mercy. Forgiveness is an act of mercy based upon something that was judicial. There's another verb here. According to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. So the, the second thing that he asks for is that his transgressions be blotted out. This, mer, this verb means to scrape off or to remove. It's a figure of speech, of course, comparing divine forgiveness to God's scraping a plaque clean. Picture this. It's, it's the picture of a craftsman stripping off the old finish off a piece of furniture so that a new finish can be applied. That's this Hebrew word blotted out. So it's a word picture for the complete removal of sin. A third imperative that David uses is wash me. Wash me, verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Since this verb in Hebrew was used more for washing clothes, it's also a figure of speech. Comparing laundering with forgiveness. Washing clothes meant beating the dirt out of the clothes, down by a river or a lake somewhere. David wants God to make him perfectly clean, or in New American Standard, thoroughly clean. I hope you see the passion that takes place in these verses. Have mercy on me according to thy loving kindness, according to your hesed, your loyal love. God is faithful. John brings this out in 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. He's faithful, and he's justified to forgive us our sins. But he's not a machine. And we shouldn't play loose with the faithfulness of God. That's, David certainly didn't. David took it very seriously. Have mercy me according to your chesed, according to your covenant faithfulness, according to the greatness of thy compassion. This word it means tender mercies. It's the same word that is used throughout the Old Testament for the word womb, W-O-M-B, the, the woman's womb. And it stresses the kind of feeling that a mother has 
toward a, a brand new, very helpless infant. And David is saying, I am totally helpless before you when it comes to this. I, there's nothing that I'm bringing to the table. And, and others, we talk about bringing the empty hands of faith to God for our initial salvation. David is bringing the empty hands of confession. No work involved, and no work can be involved. I'm, I'm coming to you, I'm admitting I am guilty. That's why he says, and, and I want you to see the passion that David brings forth in these fir- first two verses. Just hear it. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your hesed, according to the greatness of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now in verses 3 and 4, the recognition of sin in the life hangs over the sinner until it's forgiven, at least if you're normal, if you're healthy, if, you're not, if you don't have any kind of spiritual or mental illness, the recognition of one's sin ought to hang over you until you confess it. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. We call it the convicting minister of the Holy Spirit in the believer. He uses the conscience, and, and presuming you hadn't gone too far down the road and you've, you've suppressed the conscience, he will use that to convict you to confess. That's a grace act on God's part, too. He doesn't just let you go. It, it, most of the time when believers sin, they're not happy about it. God's just not going to let them be happy. Matter of fact, the more you sin, the more miserable you're going to become. Because the Holy Spirit will not let you go. Fred Stowe's not here tonight, but I love the way a phrase that Fred uses in his prayer sometimes. I don't know if you remember hearing it. A love that will not let us go. And that's the Holy Spirit's job in convicting So the recognition of sin in the life hangs over the sinner until it's forgiven. This small section in verses 3 and 4 develops David's statement where he says, I've sinned. And when he's waiting the uh, the prophet's word that God had put away for the sin. Confession, biblically, is basically admitting the sin to God. It's an admission of guilt that is consistent with the real moral guilt that the believer possesses after sinning. Okay? And again, I'm not talking about guilt feelings here. I'm talking about real guilt. The judge has pronounced you guilty. What confession is, is, is you saying, you're right. You're right. I am guilty. And it's, there's no defiance when one says that. If there's defiance, you're committing another sin while you're attempting to get back in fellowship with God, and it just is it's as absurd as those verses 5 through 8 in Romans chapter 3. As far as God's concerned, it is as absurd as that. It's an admission of guilt. Confession is an admission of guilt which is consistent with the real moral guilt that the believer possesses after sinning. Paul says, I'm sorry, got too many characters. Uh, David says in verse 3, I know my transgressions. Sometimes in, in your Bibles it may actually be improperly translated, I acknowledge my transgressions. That's reading too much of 1 John 1 9 back into this. The, the, the tense of this Hebrew verb really just means to know it. But what David is saying is this is very personal. I know deep down that what I did was wrong. And I'm admitting that to you. I know what I did was wrong. David knows he sinned. And he's not attempting to hide it. Watch. And he's not attempting to sterilize it. Extremely important. Might change your whole spiritual life. He doesn't hide it. He doesn't sterilize it. He's not proud of it. 
he understands that he is guilty, and he's admitting that before God. Now, in verse 4, David says, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight. And we've, we talked about that a bit last time. He certainly sinned against Uriah, but in terms of sinning against one that is holy, he sinned against God. And then finally we get to the part that Paul quotes, so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now, this is, I told you I was going to give you the end first. So now we're back to the very beginning, which we said was the end. Okay? What David is saying is that God the Creator is holy. And when a believer sins or acts contrary to God's holy character, the believer incurs real moral guilt. He doesn't just feel guilty. He is guilty. The reason I keep bringing that up is Sigmund Freud lied about this. Sigmund Freud was an atheist. Sigmund Freud said there is no real moral guilt. Since there's no God, according to Sigmund Freud, how could you be guilty of anything? You just feel guilty. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about guilt feelings. I'm talking about real moral guilt. And there couldn't be more of a contrast here. So that's why David says, I'm throwing all this out into the open. So you're justified when you speak. You're blameless when you judge me. Now you see how Paul used that? You know, they came back and said, well, why are you judging me if this is making you look good? You see, David says the same thing. You're blameless when you judge me because I'm guilty. You see, there is a unity to the Scriptures. There's a reason why David quoted, well, this passage by David was quoted by Paul. God is holy. The believer who sinned is guilty. It's clear that David's aim was to make his confession as frank, open, and unconditional as possible in order that on the dark background of his own unrighteousness, God's righteousness in judging him would stand out all the more clearly. Another reason why David is a man after God's own heart. He has God's interest first in his life. So to summarize these eight verses in Romans again, and to close, the failure of the Jews does not cancel the faithfulness of God. On the contrary, it highlights it. But, and listen carefully, it does not follow that faithlessness and sin are good because they highlight the faithfulness and holiness of God. God's holiness is never an excuse for sinful behavior. So to sum it up, the Jew, like the moral Gentile and the immoral Gentile, need a Savior, need justification. Heavenly Father, we are, we are awed by the fact that we too have the oracles of God, that we do even more than the Jew. We have your complete message to your people, your completed self-revelation. Now, Father, I pray that we as a people, as a culture, and as a local church specifically, will not blow this incredible advantage that we have. Father, may we learn it, may we obey it and live by it consistently, and may we boldly proclaim it to a lost and dying world. And Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.